with you. We come to a time then for our scripture for this morning, and I'd love for you all to participate in it with a refrain that uh, is a part of the scripture from Psalm 139. And so, Ben, would you lead us in this, and we'll practice it up, and then we'll all get into it. Oh, Lord, you have searched me. You have known. Thank you. Let's all rise, and we will practice it with Ben. Let's do this. Lord, you have searched me. You have known me, oh Lord. Oh Lord, you have searched me. Lord, you search me and you know me. You yourself know my resting and my rising. You discern my thoughts from afar. You mark when I walk or lie down. You know all my ways through and through. Before even a word is on my tongue, you know it, O Lord, through and through, behind and before you besiege me, your hand ever laid upon me. O Lord, you have searched me, you have known me, O wonderful for me this knowledge, too high beyond my reach. Oh, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your face? If I climb to the heavens, you are there. If I lie in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn or dwell at the sea's furthest end, even there your hand would lead me and your right hand would hold me fast. I say, let the darkness hide me and the light around me be night. Even darkness is not dark to you. The night shall be as bright as day and darkness the same as the light. Search me, you 
it was you who formed my inmost being, knit me together in my mother's womb. I thank you who wonderfully made me. How wonderful are your works, which my soul knows so well. was not hidden from you when I was being fashioned in secret and molded in the depths of the earth your eyes saw me yet unformed and all days are recorded in your book formed before one of them came into being me God and know my thoughts oh test me and know my thought no sorry oh search me God and know my heart oh test me and know my thoughts see that my path is not wicked and lead me in the way of ever, ever the way everlasting everyone. Have a seat. Have a seat and get ready because we have work to do this morning in this teaching. We come upon the beginning of Lent. Why would we want to sing a refrain, oh search me, you've searched me, oh Lord, you know me. All of this refrain. Why would we want to do that? Because my hope is, is that tomorrow morning on your way to work that you would perhaps just in a moment of silence these words would come floating into your brain. And you'd say, oh, Lord, you have searched me. And you'd say, where'd that come from? Oh, yeah, church. And that would be your prayer. This is how spiritual work gets done. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. And just because it is the beginning of Lent this Wednesday, I'm going to give you some extra work to do. You have a couple of things. You've got this little bookmark that I'll talk about in a moment. But you also have these study notes. So if you got that golf pencil, if you have a pen, uh, you're going to want to follow along. And even if you're the kind of person like, I don't do these kind of study notes, uh, just to pay attention, you might want to follow along. And I don't care if you're throwing the trash on your way out or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just an act of engagement here, a discipline of engagement. So feel free to um, use that. And if I skip the blanks, back there on that back wall, I taped an answer key. And I have one up here, which I'll sell for 25 cents. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, so let's get into this thing because we want to uh, embrace Lent well and do the hard work of it, okay? So we're going to get into this. The 139th Psalm that we just did is a prayer 
of self-awareness. It's a prayer of self-evaluation. It is meant to be an examination of the soul. We would do well to look up the 139th Psalm during Lent for the next 40 days and embrace the message that it is telling us. Take the inward journey. Search me, O God. You know everything about me. You know my daily routine. You know my thoughts and words, good, bad, and ugly. I could descend to the depths of hell and stew in my own juices, and you are there. No matter how dark my days are, you are with me. You are with me through my wife's operation. You are with me through cancer. You are with me through the birth of a child and through the death of my parents. You are with me through the loss of a job. You are with me with my, my this boring routine that I seem to can't, that I can't get out of. You are unfathomable, God. I don't know hardly anything about you. I just get glimpses and snippets from this thing called the Bible and from my prayers and from nature and some moments of transcendence before stained glass. That's all I know about you. But you know everything about me. The famous last two verses sum up much of the human condition, everyone. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Worth committing to memory. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Doesn't that sum up the human condition? Search me and lead me. So we come to the season of Lent, which begins this Ash Wednesday. And it, Ash Wednesday in Lent is, um, sorry, Lent is 40 days long. And it's this journey that the church takes of self-reflection, self-examination. Serious-minded spiritual focus is upon us, everyone. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Lent is the season when you've got to put your hand to the plow and, and run the race. It is a time to man up or a woman up or a power girl or whatever you need to do. It's time. This is it. So this morning's teaching just has three simple agendas. I want to connect the, Psalm, the 139th Psalm to the temptations of Jesus in the desert that we find at the beginning of the Gospels, particularly in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. If you have the Bible on your phone or if you brought a Bible or on an iPad or something, feel free to look it up. Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4. Both of them talk about Jesus' temptation. And we'll reference both this morning. So one thing is I want to connect the 139th Psalm to Jesus' own journey into the wilderness for the temptation. Two, I want to provide a structure for spiritual examination. So you know what we're talking about. And three, I want to challenge us to lean into Lent for the next 40 days. And so where you just, I'm going to tell you the end of everything right now. The cards are on the table. And... Uh, Lent begins with confession. It begins with confession, and that is the path to freedom. Confession leads to freedom. Confession leads to freedom. So we begin then with Mark chapter 1. We begin with the example of Jesus, and we're going to study this for a moment. And here's how the text goes. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw from heaven, the heavens tore apart, and, a, and the Spirit descended in the form of a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased, the voice said. And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels waited upon him. Verse 14. 
Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So if we look at this, if we look at this, we're going to see a pattern for how to go through Lent. What drove Jesus into the wilderness? This is a gimme on the sheet, by the way. What drove Jesus into the wilderness? Who drove Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit. The Spirit of God. Now, if you're paying attention, that's sort of a curious thing. You're like, no, wait a second. God, God sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? I didn't think God tempts people or anything like that. Like, well, whatever it is, then maybe the whole uh, journey into the wilderness is not all about temptation. Maybe perhaps it's really a journey of self-examination. You'll see this pattern over and over throughout the Bible's personalities. Whether it be Moses at the burning bush where he goes to the mountain, <clears throat> the mountain of God. Whether it be David going off into the wilderness to seek after God and hide away. Whether it be Elijah and his still small voice at the mouth of his cave. Paul going away for three years after his conversion, being knocked off his stallion. He says, i got to go figure things out. Jesus and there are others, Jeremiah and Jonah. On and on it goes. As a matter of fact, if you look around the world's religions, all of them seem to have a pattern, whether it's uh, Judaism, of course, and um, because it's part of our scriptures, whether it be Hinduism, whether it be Buddhism, they all seem to have an inward journey component. This is part of what it means to be a human being, is that you have to take a human, uh, you have to take this inward journey. It's only in America where we try and avoid it. We're all too busy. We have hurried sickness. And we're frantically trying to stay busy and distract ourselves so we don't have to think about anything. And Lent confronts us, and Jesus confronts it. So notice this, passer, pa, uh, this pattern here for Jesus. So this is on the piece of paper, by the way. First, he is affirmed by God. He, he, God gives him a completely new identity, a new name. God gives him a new name. When you go on the inward journey, the first thing in preparation is God may give you a new name. He'll give you your true identity. And for Jesus is, you're my beloved son, says God. This, this same thing happens to all of us. The first time you come to God, we call this conversion. It is this moment when you hear this distant, distant echo of heaven that says, you are my beloved. You're my child. I made you. And you know what, everyone? There's this terrible mistake in our theology in the church, and particularly people like me and so forth, who was raised in a Calvinist tradition. Now, I'm totally cool with Calvinism. I'm, well, I shouldn't say totally. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, we have this thing about total depravity that we somehow make this mistake that says, I am a wretch. I am totally depraved. There's nothing good inside of me. That may be true when it comes to salvation. It's absolutely not true when it comes to your core identity. You were made in the image of God. You see, you are a true self. But somewhere in there, Satan comes along, the accuser, as it says in the book of Job, the liar comes along and starts whispering lies into your head. You see, I think it's really strange that none of us walk around with a true identity. We walk around with these terrible names for ourselves instead of perhaps wonderful names. And, and in our society, we are yearning. We are yearning for a good name. For our true identity. And we have to turn to film and movie and stories and myth. And this, I mean, what movie doesn't, you know, rename somebody? Whether it be The Matrix or Star Wars or, or uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. You find these names, you know, you, you got to get a superhero name going like Sons of Thunder. Jesus renamed 
James and John, the sons of thunder. I always say thunder instead of thunder because it just sounds cooler, like Thor. You know, or fire maker, peacemaker, or fortress, or rock, or gate opener, or skywalker, or star lord. It's something like that. You say, I want to be that. You are that. God has a name waiting for you in heaven. You do well to chase it down. Instead of walking around with this false self-name that says you're a loser. You're divorced. You're angry. You're an addict. You're unemployable. You're worthless. You've got no skills, no talent, no money, no job. You're fatherless. You're uninteresting. You're lonely. You're unfit for love. You're just plain angry. And nobody likes you. Those are all lies. Straight from hell. That's not how God made you. The affirmation of God comes first. This affirmation of God, the Spirit then takes us into the wilderness to confront this shadow self, this false self, this lie, to confront our sin. All of it is driven by anxiety and compulsions and anger and fear. There would be no therapy industry without anxiety. It will drive you on and whip you until you're black and blue. If we take the desert journey, we come out on the other side ready for action. Ready for action. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. Because now you know what you're supposed to do. This is the pattern of Jesus. You get a new name. You get a new name, and then you confront the false self, and then you come out on the other side ready for action. You gain clarity about who you are and where you're going. Jesus knew exactly what he was supposed to do when he left the wilderness. He knew who he was, and he was ready to go. I'm here to declare the, the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let's get on with it. And thus he did. This pattern comes around and around over and over throughout our life. Remembering our new name, confronting the false self, gaining clarity. That's what Lent's supposed to do. That's what Lent's supposed to do. Take the desert journey and you will do the same thing. I mean, after all, everyone, who here this morning, right now, in this moment, who here feels strong and confident that you know exactly what time, what season it is in your life? You know exactly what place in the kingdom of God you're at right now. You're able to confidently call others to confession and repentance. Absolutely ready to proclaim the kingdom of God. It was just right there on your tongue. Right there on the tip of your tongue. Right now you're like, I am, I am strong that I know what's going on in this world. Who here was ready for that? If not, then Lent may be ready for you. That's the journey we're supposed to take. Be strong. Not many of us, many of us are confident in this thing. And it's because we all have bought into the lie of the false self that says, nah, you're a piece of trash. You don't have any game. Nothing's going on. And God's far away and he's not paying attention to you. Hmm. For too long we put off praying the prayer of the 139th Psalm. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my thoughts. Search me, O God. Hey, Leslie, can I get that uh, picture of the human body thing up here? 
Got a little diagram here for you because I think there are three centers um, that are talked about here in the temptation of Jesus. Thank you. And there are three centers to the human uh, experience. Okay. Now, you can come up with other constructs if you want, but this is the one that uh, I think correlates to the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness and to Psalm 139 and, um, and in some other sources as well. But in this diagram, I'm just putting up this picture, and you have it also on your little study sheet there, but uh, there are three centers to the soul. The soul is made up of the body, of the mind, and of the heart, okay? The body, the mind, and the heart. Each of these is necessary to make a complete you. You are made up of body, mind, and heart. What's really interesting in Western culture is how much we ignore the body, or we either idolize the body and separate it from our real person. So, but that's another subject sometime. But I want to go over these so you can understand what the inward journey looks like. Okay? But beware. Because all of these are a strength and all of them have a temptation. Okay? Every one of them has a strength. Every one of them has a temptation. And if you begin to listen to the liar, you'll begin to buy into the temptation. So let's just start with the body. And I'd rather call the body the gut. It's sort of an old-fashioned word that says your center. In the Hebrew mind, in the Old Testament, the gut was more, they talked about the liver, if you can imagine that. Maybe it was because of that big, dense, solid matter, and they're like, yeah, that's kind of where you're really living, is in your liver. Interesting to think about, it's the actual organ that purifies your body, right? So think about that sort of thing. But, uh, and we, in the West, we tend to think of cardia. We think of heart, you know, that's pumping out and gives life. But, hey, that's okay. Different cultures, different things. So, the center of the person is in the gut, and the gut, everyone, is instinctual, okay? And we know the gut, and we know the temptations of the gut, of the body. Food, sex, exercise, play, laughter, anger, sleep, and judgment. There's nothing wrong with anything, any of these things. There's nothing wrong with food. There's nothing wrong with anger if it's a self-righteous anger. There's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong with any of the appetites and the instincts of the body. They're a gift. They're given to you by God. You see, the gut never lies to you. That's what's beautiful. The heart is more deceitful. We'll go over that one in a moment. And the head, you can thank yourself into all sorts of dark little corners. But the gut, it's always telling you the truth. I'm hungry. I need sleep. Some of you right now are listening to your gut instinct very well. <laughs> I want her. She's hot. That <laughs> doesn't lie to you. It just does that sort of thing. It's like, I don't like Brussels sprouts. Now, if you're a parent and you make this dumb mistake of saying, son, why don't you like Brussels sprouts? What a stupid question. The gut's saying, I don't like Brussels sprouts. We all know it's a universal truth. Brussels sprouts are nasty. We're not sure why Belgium created Brussels sprouts, but they can't even say the word. It doesn't even want to come off my lips. Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts. Like, who wants Brussels sprouts? The gut's saying, like, I don't know. I don't want Brussels sprouts, and I don't like spinny rides either. I hate spinny rides. Why don't you like spinny rides? I don't like spinny rides because I don't like spinny rides. You may love spinny rides. Your gut says I love spinny rides. I don't like spinny rides. Tilt-a-whirls, I get sick. Finish fling, that's nasty. <laughs> it's going to get nasty if I go on it. Okay? And that one weird thing down there in Branson where it's a roller coaster that also spins... Double whammy. I mean, I love roller coasters, but why'd you have to add the spinny thing? That's not cool. And then, you know, you take the grandkids to Disneyland and you get on the Mad Hatter's teacup. Oh, it looks cute. 
until you're sick over leaning across the fence. I don't like spinny rides. Why? Because the gut says spinny rides are evil. Don't ask why. I think my dad was a gut person. He passed years ago, but I think my dad was a, a gut man. He, he just shot from the hip. He was plain spoken, and he loved President Harry Truman. He'd go over to Independence just to see if he could catch him somewhere, walking around the square. He loved Harry Truman because he had this one quote from Harry Truman, I'm a plain spoken man, and my dad loved to be a plain spoken man. What you see is what you get, and what comes out of his mouth you may not like. And Harry Truman had sitting there on his desk. What was the motto he had sitting on his desk? He said, the buck stops here, which is a gambling reference, not something about deer hunting or anything. But it said, this is it. What you see is what you get, and I'm going to deal with it. And you're going to deal with me. My dad liked that. See, gut people are that way. But the great temptation of the gut is to judge other people. That's their great temptation. That's on the piece of paper, by the way. The, the, their great temptation is to judge others. And they push against others. And if they're not pushing against others, they just ditch out and they hide from other people. They just disappear. But they'll push and they'll challenge as well. And if they're not pushing and if they're not hiding, then they're telling everybody black and white stuff because they're the gut. They know what things are. Are you this kind of person? Are you a gut person? You're like, because i got a couple more to go over. But keep this in mind. Like, yeah, I might be a gut person. I don't know. I might kind of, that might be my preference. So because Paul warns, he says, look out for the gut because the, their God is their belly, he says. Their appetites are their God. And be careful here. Like Jesus in the wilderness, gut people can be tempted to become too powerful. Why don't you throw yourself down and the angels will come rescue you? Why don't you put God to the test? Now, when gut people have faced their false self and they come out from under their sin and their shadow self, they are wonderful crusaders for the poor. Wonderful crusaders for the oppressed and the voiceless, the widow and the orphan. They are wonderful mediators. They bring peace amongst conflict, conflict and so forth. They, they get stuff done. And they also teach us all what's right. A lot of teachers are very gut people. I know we all think that they're in their head, but perhaps they're really a gut person. And they're teaching us all what's right and what's wrong. They're very clear about it because they're gut people. They're instinctual, okay? The gut brings justice, freedom, and peace. I think it's on the paper. Justice, freedom, and peace. That's their strengths, Justice, freedom, and peace. Okay, so maybe you're a heart person. Maybe you're a heart person. Now, heart people are all about other people. We say they have a heart. It means we're, that they think about other folk, right? They help. They make a difference. They make us all appreciate how wonderful and beautiful life really is. Doctors, police officers, military, politicians, some politicians, nurses, pastors, some pastors. Uh, they're, they're all kind, nice people. They, they make a difference. They're social worker type people. They're what we call the helping professions because they're all people focused. Are you a heart person? Do you already have a job like this somewhere? They're heart people. But you have to be careful, heart people, because just like Jesus, you may be tempted to throw yourself down so everyone can see how spectacularly you're helping everyone. And you walk around all melodramatic. I have helped myself to the bone. Where's, where's, my, where's my applause? And you want to be spectacular. You want to be special. I think it's on the sheet of paper. You want to be so special 
They're so tempted to be so special in front of everybody, to be such a helper and add so much value and make such a beautiful difference in the world. These are artists as well, poets and people like that. Some of the the most go-getter people in our society are heart people because they care about people so much. But as the prophet Jeremiah once said, he said, the heart is more deceitful than all else. Who can understand it? It's not like the gut. It's not instinctual. The heart can just lie to you all day long. I think she loves me. Really? That's not what I heard. (laughs) Beware, heart people. Your great temptation is people-pleasing. It's people-pleasing. And then resenting the fact that nobody saw you caring for other people. And that leads to anger. And some of the most helpful people, doctors, nurses, teachers, pastors, uh, military, firefighters, ENTs, can be so angry inside because they expect a big reward and a return for all their wonderful help. And this beautiful thing gets turned into this simmering pot of anger. When they come out of the desert on the other side through self-examination and self-awareness and confronting this and saying, search me, O God, when they spend the time at the feet of Jesus, they come out caring, helpful, and they make a difference, and they make the world beautiful all around us. In other words, they have a heart. Is this you? Are you a heart person? Got one more. What about the head? Perhaps you're a thinker. You seek clarity and information and intelligence. You're good at it, and you just collect information. The whole world is nothing but a huge fountain of facts and experiences, and you want it all. You can't help but read, learn, take it all in. You're brilliant. Other people know it. You can do anything. You can fix any recipe. You can fix any appliance. You can do all of this sort of stuff. You're, just, you're a head person, and you want to take it all in, and the world is just full of information and experiences that you can't get enough of. But what happens if you can't get all the information that you feel like you need, and you can't experience everything that you think you want to experience, and you know what happens is, is anxiety sets in, and you begin to fear, and you want security, and you want clarity, and you can't get clarity, and so you begin to get really scared in life. Thinking people can really move into a fearful place. And your great temptation then is greed because you want to take it all in and not give any of it back. And you will collect information and become very, very smart and you'll just stall out and get trapped. You have to avoid the same temptation that Satan threw at Jesus in the desert. Turn these stones into bread because folks, head people, you cannot feed yourself. It comes from God. And you gotta give up trying to be God all day long. And, and know everything that God knows. And run the world and create everything in, in, like you're made in you know, Dan's image. Remember, you cannot feed yourself. God feeds you. And you must be grateful and stop fearing. And part of your inward journey is to come to this place where you realize God is God and you are not. Like the scripture says, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every gift comes from God, and that would be your prayer, head people. You say, like, everything comes from God. It's a perfectly safe world. It's okay. 
it's okay. When you make the, when head people make the journey through the desert's inward journey, they come out on the other side um, at peace, they feel safe, strong, and focused, and they bring belief to a scared and fractured world. They bring belief to a fractured world. They feel safe. They feel focused. They know what's going on because God is giving them the gift of being content with what they have. They don't need to know and experience everything. So which center do you gravitate to? Do you gravitate to this head one? Do you gravitate to this heart one? Or are you down in the gut? What kind of person are you? I mean, you have all three, but you have one that you kind of particularly favor. It's more the lenses that you look through the world at. That's how it goes. Which one are you, gut, heart, or head? Because Lent begins with a confession, and depending on where you tend to live is where you ought to confess. And I have a little, you know, tool here. Like I always say, uh, I hate gimmicks unless I create them, and so I created this one. And so get this little bookmark out, um, and if you don't like this gimmick, then go create your own. Uh, but it says, search me, O God, and then it says, I confess. I let go of my need for security and survival. And then you say, welcome to God, uh, to Jesus, actually. Come, Holy Spirit, whom shall I fear? So who would this be? Well, this would be a head person because fear is what drives them. And they need to confess the fact that they're trying to, you know, manage everything themselves, be secure and survive, collect all the information. So the head person needs to say, whom shall I fear? I'm going to let go. I confess that I keep wanting to be God. And then the next one is I let go of my, I confess that I, I let go of my need for approval and affection. Welcome. Come, Holy Spirit. Only you. I only need an audience of one, not everybody else. I don't need all the plaudits and awards and placards and stickers and all this sort of stuff about how special I am because their great temptation is to be special. And so who is this? This is the heart. I give up. I let go of needing everyone else's approval and thinking I'm so special. And then the last confession would be, I let go of my need for power and control. Welcome. Come, Holy Spirit. I bend my knee to you. I give up power, and I just simply say, my instincts are yours, God. And I confess that I will want to steal that from you. So these would be the way we would want to confess this sort of thing and go through this whole deal. Um, and you would want to use this sort of a confessional tool to make this happen, okay? Um, and that's how we'll do this in just a moment. But I, a thing about Lent, everyone, a thing about Lent, and we're going to get to the Lord's table here too, and that's why the servers are coming forward. Lent re requires hard work. This inward journey is hard work. It's going to be a moment for the next 40 days where you take serious the condition of your soul. Sometimes it's as simple as turn off the sports radio on the drive into work. Turn off the music and just drive in the silence. And see what comes in that little sanctuary in America that we call the car. Be alone with yourself. Slow down. Take the journey. The hard work is not working so hard. <laughs> okay? Lori brought home this uh, article. My wife brought home this article about how parents make this huge mistake of praising their kids for being smart. You know? And uh, I make this mistake all the time. Um, we make this mistake of praising our kids for being smart. You're so smart. Oh, wow, you got a B plus. You're so smart. You're such a brilliant kid. This is great. Oh, you're going to do well. This is so awesome. And, and the kid, 
usually doesn't believe you. I mean, they may have a poor self-image and think, like, I'm really not that smart. Or they really think, like, yeah, I'm smart. I did fine. I got an A. I'm good. Big deal. I mean, you know, and that's fine. And the surveys show, the studies show, that instead of praising kids for being smart, what you really ought to praise kids for is hard work. And they just did studies on this sort of thing, that kids who actually got praised for, doing, uh, for being smart actually did worse on their next exam or test or didn't try because they didn't want to go backwards. But kids who were told that they worked hard actually embraced a harder test the next time. Okay? So we want to learn that hard work is what's important, not being smart, which is a great relief to a lot of us in the room, I hope. Uh, also, a couple of weeks ago, Lori and I and my daughter, who's 14, we went over to the high school for, to hear a presentation about the Interbaccalaureate program. I'd never heard about this thing, but it's called the IB program, the Interbaccalaureate program. You can get a diploma in high school, your junior and senior year, um, and take college-level courses and get credit for two years of college and sort of deal, you know. And it's a ton of work, like seven hours of, you know, these IB courses and so forth in science and math. So they had about 15 kids up there on a panel. And you could look at them. You could tell these kids were sharp. They were smart kids in high school, okay? But they ask all of the students, every one of them, what did you get out of the interbaccalaureate, the IB program, out of the diploma program? Not one of them said, I learned to be smarter. Not one. Every one of them, every one of them said this, I learned how to manage my time better. In other words, I learned how to work smart, right? I learned how to work harder. I got organized. I put my nose to the grindstone, hand on the plow, no looking back, and I ran the race. Isn't that what your grandfather and your grandmother and your parents have always told you? Work hard. That's how you get ahead in this world. And, you know, you're kind of like, yeah, I know. And then if you're old enough, you've been around the barn a few times, you'll be like, yeah, that is, actually is more important. Hard work. And so we come to Lent, and I'm saying, can, are we ready to step up for some hard interior work about our soul? That's what I'm proposing. So whether it's parenting, high school, or the Christian life, hard work is what changes, not smarts or cool feelings or money or fame. Hard work. And Lent is a time for hard work. So we come to this moment where I'm going to propose that we confess, okay? And because Lent begins with confession, and we'll do this again on Wednesday night, but I'm going to ask you then to stand. Right now, go ahead and stand up, please, if you would. You're probably ready for that anyway. And um, I'm going to uh, get your bookmark in your hand, and this is our prayer of confession. Now, I want one little nuance to this thing, please. If you think and you have a hunch, just a vague hunch, it's okay. You may not be certain. Some of you may be. If you're a head person, then you know that the security, I need, to, I need to let go of my need for security and survival. Like, that's you. Then just raise your hand. And if you're kind of timid or intimidated about it or you don't buy into this kind of hokey stuff, then just kind of, you know, fake it. Uh, but if you know it's you, then you just raise your hand real high. And if you're, if you're one of these, I hear that. Uh, if you want approval and affection, if you think that's your temptation, for everyone to like you and love you and please everybody, then when we get to that one, you raise your hand. And if you're um, a gut person, then you're the power and control person. You want to be God. And you're saying, I don't want to be God. I just need to give up trying to be God and control everything. All right, so you get it. So you raise your hand on you when you think it's you. Now, if you think you're all three and you're like, you're just a total mess, then you just keep your hand up, wave the wheat, whatever you need to do the whole stinking time, okay? 
Or if you don't know, then, you know, don't raise anything. But just try it and see what happens, okay? So, because confession is about coming out and coming clean. That's why I'm asking you to raise your hand. All right, let's do this thing together. Search me, oh God. Ready? I confess, I confess, I let go of my need. You're supposed to join me. I let go of my need for security and survival. Welcome. Come, Holy Spirit, whom shall I fear? I confess, I let go of my need for approval and affection. Welcome. Come, Holy Spirit. Only you, Lord. I confess, I let go of my need for power and control. Welcome. Come, Holy Spirit. I bend my knee to you. It feels good to confess, yeah? It feels good to get things out a little bit. Imagine if you took this bookmark with you now for the next few weeks or whatever, and every now and then you just put it on your dash or you put it on your mirror when you're brushing your teeth, and you said, I just confess, God, what you see is what you get. I'm coming clean one more time. That would be a great journey to take. Well, now we come to the Lord's table, and I propose that we come with a contrite heart, with an honest heart, and we begin Lent right. The Lord's table is a leveling table. There is no rich or poor or smart or not so smart or messed up or all together when we come to the table of the Lord. We are all equal at the foot of the cross and at the table of the Lord. It is an act of submission. And so, Lord, we lift our hearts up to you and we give thanks to you because on the night, Jesus, when you were betrayed, you took a loaf of bread and after you'd given thanks, you broke it and you said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Everyone join me in this. Christ has risen. Christ, sorry, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Hallelujah. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Everyone, therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God, for the people of God. Come whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the loaf. Dip in the chalice. Consume it right there. And go back to your seat. And we'll wrap things up. Oh, Lord, you have fed us with spiritual food. Send us now into the world to be your, your agents of the good news, to bring life to everywhere we go. Lord, we have come in like the tide, and you're washing us back out into an ocean that is desperate for nutrients, into a world that is desperate for, for your peace and for your love and for your assurance. May we be those people fed by your Spirit, who changed the world in the name of Jesus Christ. And we all said, amen. So with that, let us end with a Celtic blessing. Everyone stand, please, and we will take the good word out of here. Uh, and we will say it to each other and all together. I believe it's on the screen. There it is. Join me. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.